Welcome to episode 17 in the third season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and with me is our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. This episode, we're turning from our usual laundry list of disturbing events to start with something a little sunnier. We'll be talking about the Justice Center's annual George Jonas Freedom Award. This is a happy topic, but it invariably springs from trying times. And these last two and a half years have been trying, with rights and freedoms across the globe under attack from governments and bureaucrats under the cover of a pandemic. It's not over. Undoubtedly, there are trying times to come. Yet we must give ourselves time to celebrate. And this celebration involves dinners and awards and stirring speeches from notable individuals who, I believe, are like-minded with our listeners on the topics of freedom and liberty, on the benefits to all humanity of the free society. These benefits, history has verified since the time of the ancient Greeks, where some measure of freedom allowed for a flowering of science and culture. And this flowering has reoccurred time and again, during the ensuing two and a half millenniums, in various places throughout the globe, when freedom has won the day. If I may, before I turn the floor over to John, I will inject here some wise words from the great Athenian statesman Pericles in the 5th century BC. Quote, Freedom is the sure possession of those alone who have the courage to defend it. Unquote. So, John, who is the Justice Center recognizing this year? Open the envelope and tell us who is the person who had, or I should say has, the courage to defend freedom. And the winner is... Tamara Leach, one of the leaders of the Freedom Convoy, was, after uh, careful consideration by the Board of Directors, was chosen as the 2022 recipient of the George Jonas Freedom Award. George Jonas, I love talking about him. I had the honor of knowing him, uh, meeting him in person, and he was a very interesting life story. He was born in 1935 and uh, in Hungary. And at that time, the Hungarian regime was a fascist regime, not out and out totalitarian, but fascist regime, anti-Semitic allied with uh, Hitler and, and Nazi Germany, and as time went on, became more and more uh, anti-Semitic, more aggressive in its persecution of, uh, of the Jewish minority in Hungary. And then in 1945, uh, out of the frying pan into the fire, uh, Hungary was conquered by the Red Army, which forced the country to become communist. And then in 1956, when George Jonas was about 21 years old, there was a, an anti-communist uprising. There was a, a new leader who kind of moved the country away from uh, communism. I don't, I don't know the details. It's not a topic I've studied too much. But uh, basically, well, I think it was 56, wasn't it? 1956. Yeah. What, what, what year yeah. did I say? No, no, that's okay. I just yeah, yeah. didn't actually say. So 1956, when George Jonas would have been about 21 years old, the um, Soviet tanks invaded Hungary to quell the anti-communist rebellion and to overthrow the new 
you know, anti-communist or non-communist government. And at that time, there were tens of thousands of Hungarians who had a small window of opportunity to flee. And they went to the United States and Canada and, you know, Australia. They went all over the world. The um, people that, that did not want to live under communism, they, they left Hungary in, in, uh, in large numbers. George Jonas has got a fascinating story on that. He, he said he ended up going, getting into Canada because the, the lineup at the American embassy was, was huge and long. And the lineup at the Canadian embassy was a lot shorter. He went into the Canadian embassy, uh, applied for his papers and came to Canada. And patience brought him here. Okay. 1956. And he, so, so this is a guy who lived under a Nazi regime. Uh, or a Nazi sympathetic regime, as well as under communism. And he just hated totalitarianism in whatever flavor it, it comes. And so he, he lived in Canada, worked here as a uh, writer and poet and an author of books. And in the, the last years of his life, he was uh, best known as a National Post columnist. Uh, he was also on the board of directors of the Oria Foundation, which was funded by Peter Monk, who's also a Jewish-Hungarian uh, immigrant to Canada. I don't know if he came over in 56 or not. Or pick the short line. Pick the short line, get into Canada, and not, not stand in the long line for the U.S. And in the early stages, of, when the Justice Center was first getting off the ground, it was uh, received letters patent in uh, the fall of 2010. And so in 2011, we're brand new and just getting started and the Oria Foundation gave us grants, uh, $50,000 per year for the first two years, and then uh, $75,000 for the third year, and I think the fourth year as well. And then the Oria Foundation you know, wound up its operations and, and ceased to be. But when you are young and struggling and just getting off the ground, a $50,000, $75,000 grant is just the difference between life and death. Right, it gives you, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, for a, sure. a budget that you can hire. Uh, gives you a big chunk of your budget, so you can hire two or three people and actually get things done, as opposed to you know having to be uh, very much on a volunteer basis, which can also work, but you know it takes a lot longer and is not necessarily as as effective as being able to hire people. So that was a very valuable. And George Jonas was on the board of the Oria Foundation, so he he played a role in getting us that funding. And uh, just a brilliant commentator. His columns are still online. If you Google National Post George Jonas, you'll have lots and lots and lots of columns coming up. And uh, always with a freedom focus and a freedom emphasis. Right. I have to ask you, I don't think I did last year. Was it your idea to name the award after him? Or, or did somebody come to you and say, this is the person you should uh, name this award after? I'm just kind of curious. How did, it, how did it come about that he was named the – well, was he the first winner? Actually, I don't know. No, first winner was, was Mark Stein in, in, uh, in 2018. And I'll, I'll, get, I'll get to oh. some of the previous winners and why they won and uh, this kind of mm -hmm. thing. You know, George Jonas passed away in 2016, and I – I just, I really wanted to honor his memory. And I also thought it was important that Canada should, should institute an award that goes to a Canadian for his or her or their, if it's a, you know, plural, a group of people. But 
an award in recognition of valuable contributions made to the preservation of Canada as a free society. And to my knowledge, nothing of the sort was in existence. Uh, going back about 20 years, 25 years, at, at one point in time, the the National Citizens Coalition had an annual Freedom Medal. Uh, I, perhaps they're still doing that. I'm not aware of uh, of that. But every year they give out a medal with a, uh, I don't know, $5,000 or $10,000 uh, prize attached to it. And uh, for, you know, a pro-freedom person. And so it was, it was a good idea to, to, to have an annual award. It helps to promote a cause. And I'm in the business of trying to promote our constitutional freedoms in a, a free and virtuous society. I add virtuous mm-hmm. because if you have a free society, but if people are not virtuous, then you need all of that government to keep everything under control and everything regulated, right? So a, a free society requires virtuous people, not perfect virtue, but at least a, a healthy dose of it, uh, because we need to control ourselves uh, internally by seeking virtue if we are able to have a society where we can get along with each other without killing each other and without needing a heavy-handed police state to regulate everything. We need that internal virtue. So free and virtuous society. And so I approached his widow, a lovely lady named Maya Jonas, a fascinating woman. She had the tragedy of going blind as an adult and, um, uh, and George Jonas commented to me once, he said, like, before she went blind, she, she was, you know, not, not that active of, of a person, you know, spent a lot of time on the couch watching TV. And after, after she became blind, she took up cross country running and skiing and scuba diving and skydiving. And I'm probably exaggerating. I don't know if those are all accurate, but George said, you know, she, uh, after she became blind, she became this very physical, uh, physically active person that was running marathons and training and in the, uh, para Olympics and uh, all of this stuff. So just a, a superstar athlete and a very lovely person. And so I had the good fortune of meeting her a few times as well. I had the honor of reading George Jonas's speech at an event. Uh, this would have been uh, when I was working for the, when I was running the, the Canadian Constitution Foundation, somewhere between 2005 and 2010. And uh, there is one of the annual law conferences that I organized, and George Jonas was a speaker there. And his doctors had said he was in, you know, his kind of, his health was poor, not disastrous, but not great. And his doctors had said, you know, you should probably refrain from public speaking in case you have some sort of a mini stroke or something while you're speaking. And, you know, it's not good. And so George Jonas wrote this wonderful speech because he was the, the keynote speaker. And I had the honor, he was there in the room with, with Maya and with and their service dog because you know, Maya's got her, her dog with her. And I got to read this speech and it was so moving. At one point, I just, I just about broke down. I had to take a deep breath and regain my composure to continue reading. And, um, you yeah, still so have he was, that? I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to look it up and see what, see where, where, how it is. It might be on the website of the Canadian Constitution Foundation, which is www.theccf.ca. It might be on there. I don't know. Oh, okay. It would be interesting. Uh, I don't know whether you could 
record excerpts for us, but uh, that would be kind of fun to have that. Well, I back, can, uh, we, 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 can both, we can both look for it this week. Sure. Sounds good. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, on to some of the past winners now. So the first, uh, okay, so I approached, I approached Maya Jonas and, oh, oh, and sorry. I, yeah, no, it's okay. And I, <laughs> so I approached Maya Jonas and, uh, put, said, you know, the Justice Center would like to have a institute an award in honor of George Jonas, the George Jonas Freedom Award. And she liked the idea. And so she has been to most of our dinners in, um, we didn't have a dinner in 2021, sadly. We just had an online event only. And um, she w- she gives the award. Uh, she hands out the plaque to the winner. So in 2018, it was Mark Stein, a uh, famous Canadian, uh, used to write for the National Post, sadly does not do so anymore, has not done so for a long time. The National Post was a very different paper 20-something years ago. And Mark Stein had the misfortune of getting prosecuted by the, I believe it was the BC Human Rights Commission, because somebody had complained about his article in McLean's magazine being Islamophobic. And excerpt from his book, actually, yeah. Yeah, excerpt from his book. And yeah. this is outrageous, of course. I mean, whether whether it was uh, Islamophobic or not, I mean, in a, in a free country, you can criticize uh, – all religious and, and political beliefs and systems and so on and so forth. And so, you know, criticism of Islam should be as legal as, as criticism of, of any other religion or belief system, including atheism. You know, say what you want. Uh, we've got criminal code provisions that ban hate speech. So, okay, so you, you know, should, should not be calling for the death of, you know, atheists or Muslims or Christians or Jews or, or any other group of people. Uh, okay, but, you know, you can criticize their belief system. So, fortunately, McLean's was, the company that owned McLean's, which was Rogers, they did undertake a vigorous defense. Uh, that might not happen today. I mean, that happened, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. But these days, I think most large corporations would just buckle and cave to whatever human rights complaint came in the door. I hope I'm wrong on that point. But... uh the company that owned McLean's magazine decided to defend it and say, no, we can, you know, <laughs> whether you agree or disagree with Mark Stein, uh, with his, his comments and, and whether they were Islamophobic or not, we have the right to publish what we want. So they did eventually win, but obviously it, it, you know, drained the company of, of tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal bills just because, uh, somebody complained about something being Islamophobic. So Mark Stein, uh, for his courageous advocacy for charter rights and freedoms, particularly freedom of expression uh, and his work in defense of the free society, he was the first winner in 2018. He was introduced by Conrad Black, who gave a fantastic speech, went on for 10 or 15 minutes. And I think that uh, is posted at www.jccf.ca. Our website will have the previous dinners. Next year was Christy Blatchford who received the award in June of 2019. She was introduced by a famous Canadian criminal defense lawyer, Marie Hennan, who did a fantastic introductory speech. And then uh, Christy received the award, sadly was diagnosed with cancer uh, only about three months later, right before the Calgary dinner. She was supposed to speak at a second dinner in Calgary, October the 28th, 2019, and emailed me, 
three or four days prior and said, you know, I'm sorry, I've just been diagnosed with cancer. I have to, I have to stay here in Toronto because, you know, if they want to run different tests, I got to be right here right now because if there's any window of opportunity to go get other, you know, tests or treatment, this or that. So in spite of the sad fact that she did not join us, we had a great event in Calgary, over 300 people, everybody together celebrating freedom. And in 2020, the award was given to the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship. And of course, an organization that for decades has done the hard labor of defending academic freedom against political correctness and has done a stellar job. It's not a famous organization, but it, it does important work. And then in 2021, it was given to Canadians resisting unconstitutional lockdowns. And so that was a bit of a broader category. We did have speakers. We had uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford University was our keynote. It was an online event, sadly, because the uh, our politicians had, uh, with vaccine passports violating our freedom of association and our um, our right to bodily autonomy, et cetera. So we had an online event. And uh, another speaker was Francis Christian. So we did have individual speakers who spoke, uh, but mm-hmm. the award was given out to Canadians resisting unconstitutional lockdowns. Right. I I was there at that one. That was uh, a lot of fun, although uh, I Sadly did not in person, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, I did cook for myself, though I was sadly disappointed with the result. So. <laughs> Now, in 2021, uh, sorry, this year, 2022, it's Tamara Leach, uh, one of the leaders of Freedom Convoy, was in Ottawa for uh, three and a half weeks, spent a total of 18 days in jail, unjustly, uh, falsely charged with, I mean, you know, the verdict, it is before the court's time will tell, we'll see what the verdict is, but I think these are trumped up political charges, uh, falsely accusing her of uh, criminal conduct when she didn't even have a truck in Ottawa for for one, and it's doubtful how illegal any of the activities were in light of the fact that the police in the first three weeks did not charge anybody with committing a crime, did not arrest anybody, and at the same time, in a very duplicitous fashion, was announcing at press conferences that these are illegal blockades, illegal protests, illegal behavior, yet they didn't. Uh, arrest anybody until after the truckers had been there for three weeks. And the truckers were cooperating with the police on a daily basis. Police were telling the truckers where to park. And so on the ground, the truckers and the police had a harmonious relationship. The police was not arresting uh, anybody, not charging anybody. So I I think all these criminal charges are trumped up. And uh, I I hope that Tamara will be acquitted and... uh, She's she a lovely will be speaking, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Now, so we got we got three dinners that we're planning. We've got June the 16th in Toronto. So you can go to www.jccf.ca, buy your ticket if if you're in if you live in Toronto or near Toronto or you're willing to fly to Toronto or travel to Toronto. It's Thursday, June the 16th. Uh, there's early bird tickets are available right now, $150 a piece per person. And uh, after May 15th, it's going to go up to $200. And our keynote speaker is, drumroll, Rex Murphy. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Rex well, Murphy. Okay. 
Rex Murphy was also our keynote speaker in in June of 2020, and sadly, mm-hmm. he got a bad case of the flu. Just hour, he woke up in the morning. Uh, he's supposed to speak at you know 6 p.m., 7 p.m., whatever. He's supposed to speak at the evening dinner. He wakes up in the morning feeling sick, and he just says like, I don't know if I can do it tonight, but you know, I'll I'll tell you for sure. Uh, hopefully, I'm feeling better by two or three p.m. But if if I'm not better by two p.m., I, I just I can't do this. I'm sick. Uh, so we ended up getting Jonathan Kay uh, last minute as a stand-in. Jonathan Kay is, I think, editor of Quillette and is uh, a well-known Canadian writer and thinker. And Yeah, longtime employee of the National Post as well, like Christy Blashford, Rex Murphy. Yeah, he comes from that, that uh, same camp, really. I don't know where he is right now. But uh, yeah, he, he did, I think, get his start with the Post or at least a significant portion of his career at the Post, so... So he, I have a tricky question. Yes. Tricky question. Okay. Cause you did, I did ask about Tamara speaking at the dinner. And I have to ask this because it came up in a prior podcast. She is under these onerous bail restrictions. And can she speak at the dinner without violating those restrictions? Well, two part answer. Okay. One is we we uh, we hope those those bail conditions will be gone by by June the sixteenth because we are appealing them. So yeah, these are are blatant and severe violations of her freedom of expression and freedom of association, completely mm-hmm. unwarranted for uh, a mother and grandmother with no criminal record, uh, who's not charged with a violent crime, who has not committed any violence. And to say that, you know, she can't speak freely, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but the, the gist of it is that she cannot uh, say anything that is against uh, government mandates for, for lockdowns and vaccines. I mean, it's just like, uh, it, it's just a broad, sweeping, and totally unfair and unnecessary restriction on her free speech rights. If we don't get that successfully repealed and removed by June the 16th, then I anticipate that she will be speaking in a manner that does not violate bail conditions. In code. (laughs) As I've advocated in the past. Okay. So then uh, second dinner in Vancouver in July, tentatively Thursday, July 14th. Uh, So we're going to have a second George Jonas Freedom Award dinner. Yeah. And then there's a third one in Calgary on uh, Thursday, August the 11th. So um, we're still uh, waiting to hear back if if Rex Murphy is going to be keynote as well for Calgary or Vancouver or both or uh, uh, we're gonna we're gonna see about that. But definitely, so the first one is Thursday, June the sixteenth in Toronto. Oh yeah, VIP reception with Rex Murphy. So for uh, we haven't determined the number yet, but for. For a smaller group of people, VIP reception tickets are available as well at a higher price, of course. You can't save the world if you can't pay the rent, so the Justice Center needs the money. So there you go. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. How do people get tickets? Too. How do they get tickets? They can buy them online, www.jccf.ca. And I figure anybody sophisticated enough to be listening to a podcast probably has access to the internet and can buy a ticket online. <laughs> 
Oh boy. We are we are going to do a mail out to our Toronto like there are there are people there are justice center supporters that do not use the internet so they're going to get snail mail information because I think it's important to get the word out to uh to people so the uh we're going to snail mail to the our our supporters in the Toronto area so they'll get something in the mail telling them about the tickets and then they can mail in a check if they want and get their ticket that way as well. Right. And those people are probably not listening to this podcast. And they probably won't be affected by our next story, which is what you want to talk about. Because <laughs> I understand you're doing an analysis of the uh, Online Streaming Act. I think it's still called Bill C-11. Uh, yes. Okay, right. Okay, I, we can get onto this topic, but I want to start with a question, just I guess of general principle. Uh, I want to ask you, can Canada's federal government be trusted to protect our rights and freedoms as they write legislation to control internet services and content. No. What's your, okay. Next question. Our starting no. point. <laughs> starting. That's Look, all I, I don't, wanted. I don't have trust in, in a federal government that you know, has a double standard on protesters and will, uh, you know, gladly tolerate when people are protesting in the name of uh, Aboriginal rights or the environment, they can blockade railway lines and effectively shut down or partially shut down the harbors in Vancouver and Halifax because goods cannot be transported uh, by rail because they're being blockaded by protesters. And the prime minister says, oh, we have to negotiate with these people and sit down and listen to their concerns uh, when blockading railway lines is uh, criminal conduct. Uh, when you see people vandalizing at the Manitoba legislature, the large statue of Queen Victoria and pulling it off and uh, damaging it and the police stand by and watch. Why? Because they like the cause. They agree with the cause. They think if you're uh, demonstrating for Aboriginal rights, well, then it's okay. You can break the law. You can do whatever you want. And then conversely, uh, you get this crackdown on these peaceful truckers in Ottawa. Why? Because the government doesn't like their cause. What is their cause? Their cause is to live authentically like Canadians and enjoy our char charter rights and freedoms to move and travel and speak and associate and assemble and practice our faith and have the right to bodily autonomy and not suffer duress or coercion uh, from government to get injected with a substance uh, on which there's no long-term safety data available all of these rights and freedoms is what the truckers were protesting for, and Trudeau did not like it, and so invoked the Emergencies Act and didn't even meet with these people. So no, and I, I don't, I, I don't trust a federal. Why would I trust a federal government on free speech when they are pursuing this uh, political and utterly unscientific persecution of people that have not had their COVID injections are not allowed to fly on airplanes? Why? Well, this is just to punish political opponents. I mean, there's no intelligent rationale for it. Everybody knows that the vaccine, you know, did not stop the spread, uh, did not help us achieve herd immunity. Vaccine manufacturers have said so themselves publicly. Everybody knows that there's no scientific or medical rationale for saying that, that Canadians who are not injected, uh, with COVID vaccines should not be allowed on airplanes. There's even arguments coming out to the effect that, that fully vaccinated people 
are more dangerous spreaders of the virus than the unvaccinated. I don't know if that's true or not, but the point is the vaccine does not stop the spread. So there's no reason to uh, discriminate as between vaccinated and unvaccinated Canadians. So if, you, if you're not going to listen to science uh, on that and you're going to take a, a fanatical approach to persecute uh, political opponents with this kind of legislative discrimination, why would I trust you on free speech? And we've heard lots of murmurings and rumblings in the last few years about government wanting to, the federal government wanting to protect us from, quote, hate, quote, unquote. Mm-hmm. Well, I, uh, I'm really surprised at your answer. And my, no, my question wasn't a complete <laughs> setup. <laughs> but maybe we can get on to now, now on to some of your specific criticisms in your I guess it's uh, in its infancy, your analysis. Yes. Maybe you could. Okay. Well, I started, I started to analyze this and then I got into it and it's like, holy cow. I've like, I want to spend another two, three, four hours and look into this a lot further. Uh, So we're only going to touch on the surface, but this is bill C11. It is the online streaming act. The stated purpose is to subject Disney and Netflix and these big companies and put them under the control of the Canadian Radio Television and Telecommunications Commission, the CRTC, which in days gone by regulated radio and television, and the world was a bit simpler then because there was just radio and television. The CRTC, uh, to my knowledge, did not regulate newspapers, so they're kind of like a total free-for-all on print productions. Anybody could could do anything and there's no no government regulations. But for radio and television, there's government regulation. And now uh, the Online Streaming Act uh, extends the CRTC. It gets the CRTC to have some jurisdiction over the internet. Now, the government argues that this doesn't apply to individual users. It's the purpose is just to uh, force if this bill passes, which it likely will. Uh, if the NDP uh, supports it, then Liberal NDP majority, it, it'll probably get through. So the stated purpose is to subject uh, companies like Netflix or Disney to the CRTC. So in the CRTC, the, the, the CRTC can say to Netflix, we demand that you have more Canadian programs available, you know, and, and if you don't do that, we're going to fine you, penalize you, you know, slap an extra tax on you, whatever. So it's to subject Netflix or Disney to the, the CRTC. I, whether I agree with that or not personally, I would say that in and of itself, that doesn't threaten anybody's freedom of expression. I, I guess it threatens the freedom of expression at Netflix. They lose their right to just post whatever they want. But this yeah. is this is regulation of of speech. It's not censorship, and the government states that it. Um, well, it's the Canadian content rules, isn't that how they're trying to pitch this? Yes. Sort of like more beachcombers, twenty twenty two. You know that kind of thing, and uh, little mosque like on the that, prairie. <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, corner gas. But how come it's causing controversy? I mean, it's it's obviously uh, you've got free speech advocates that are a little bit worried about it. Obviously, freedom advocates like yourself are worried about it. 
And, and of course, there has been criticism, I think, by Twitter and some big tech as well, simply because of the uh, directorate that they're setting up to actually do the policing. So go on. What's your main beef? Start with the main beef. The main beef, I'm going to quote from Michael Geist. Uh, he's written a lot about this topic. He's a law prof at the, I believe it's the University of, of Ottawa. So it's Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, and then Geist is G-E-I-S-T, Michael Geist, German word for spirit. Um, so ca or .com, I forget which. So he, the problem is this, uh, this legislation will have an end result of the CRTC having authority, having jurisdiction over what Canadians are posting on the internet. Uh, there's a concern with uh, monetizing anything that could be monetized. And I immediately thought about the Justice Centre videos. We've got quite a few videos that they're on our website. They're also on Rumble, a fair amount on YouTube. At one point, a few years ago, we had a, a huge number of videos on, on YouTube and there was a technical problem and we had a catastrophic loss and a lot of those videos were lost. But it occurs to me that the Justice Center's videos probably are you know, contributing indirectly to our funding. Because if somebody watches the video and they like it, and they say, oh, well, you know, well, that's a good group. I think I want to support them. And then go to our website and, and make, you know, donate $10 or $100 or $1,000 or whatever they want. And so you could say that our videos are, you know, potentially monetizing the justice center it's monetization of content uh in one form or another and so the crtc says that anything that's monetizable directly or indirectly generates revenues is going to be under the crtc indirectly yeah indirectly directly or indirectly okay so michael geist says that on the one hand there's a section that says that this does not apply to uh, individuals, uh, so individuals are not treated as broadcasters. But he goes on that there's a different section of the bill, and he says that um, there's an exception that is carved out that the act applies to programs as prescribed by regulations that may be created by the CRTC. So there is the problem. The act gives power to the CRTC to make regulations. So on the face of it, Bill C-11 is not a problem, but if it's passed, the CRTC can make regulations and then can start uh, going after whomever it wants to. So that's a problem. Political opponents of the current regime, for instance. Maybe. Liberal or conservative, they can go after the uh, enemy of the day. So it's not necessarily that we see the bad parts of this right now. It's just the potential because it gives them the power to create good or bad legislation. Right. And then you have the regulation of the content. So once something comes under the purview of the CRTC, uh, the CRTC then has a then has a power to regulate the content. So here's a preamble uh, from Government of Canada website. Quote, one of the reasons we are updating the Broadcasting Act is to support greater diversity and inclusion in the broadcasting sector. 
This ensures greater representation of indigenous peoples, racialized communities, cultural and linguistic minorities, LGBTQ2 plus communities, and persons with disabilities. Okay. So again, this doesn't necessarily, if the CRTC, if this is limited only to, to Disney and Netflix, I mean, yeah, there's some violation of freedom of expression, but it's not a, a massive amount that's going to impact 38 million Canadians. But to the extent that the CRTC has control over the internet, it means that uh, the government is saying, look, you know, you need this diversity and inclusion. And unfortunately, how those words, uh, <laughs> what they really mean is, is not a, is not a great thing for freedom, you know. Traditionally, what it's meant is that big corporations can afford to abide by those regulations, but smaller groups cannot simply because they cost a lot of money. So it basically takes them out of the market by these regulations that require them to do things they cannot afford to do. Yeah. Yeah. Re reading another, uh, from Government of Canada website, what are we trying to accomplish? Question mark. Once implemented, Bill C-11 is expected to create one fair set of rules for all comparable broadcasters online Ouch. or on traditional media, such as requiring those who benefit from Canadian arts and culture to invest in it. So, okay, that's, you know, again, getting back to Disney and and Netflix should be regulated as much as radio and television. Uh, but then it says the the goal is to create a more inclusive broadcasting system that is reflective of Canadian society and that serves Canadians from all walks of life. I think that's code for you got to be politically correct. Yeah, if, because if you're, not, you're not point, being if yeah. you're not you're not being inclusive, right? The cost of entry is really low right now. So if we don't have those representations, it's because people don't or choose not to, because it's not like, you know, you have to invest an awful lot to produce a podcast. You can tell by my wage. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I see here in uh, this these notes that you sent me of your preliminary assessment, you uh, you talk about the Supreme Court of Canada rejecting the argument that the CRTC has general statutory jurisdiction over internet content. Is that essentially what uh, we're dealing with here? They actually have been judged and uh, are not deemed adequate in terms of their ability to adjudicate the internet? I think this is a baby step in the wrong direction. If, okay. if, if Parliament passed a law saying that, you know, the CRTC is in charge of everything on the internet. And so now, you know, every blog, every, every website is, is going to be watched by government to make sure that it's sufficiently Canadian, you know, as determined by the powers that be and, and that it's, it's, it's diverse and it's inclusive and this, that and the other thing. If they went at this hard and aggressive in a widespread fashion, then it um, would likely get struck down by a court as an unjustifiable violation of free expression. But when they dress it up as, you know, promoting Canadian content and, you know, the purpose is to uh, protect and promote Canadian content and, you know, we're only going after, uh, uh, for-profit companies and it doesn't touch on individuals when it's coached that way it's very hard to take to court in fact it's unlikely 
and again, I'm only at the preliminary analysis, but it, it, it's unlikely that the provisions of C11 could be successfully taken to court uh, only because there's no discernible harm right now yet. What could be taken to court in the future if this bill passes is if the CRTC passes regulations. And now you've got a regulation that, say, applies to uh, some, you know, citizens group, some advocacy group. Uh, and CRTC is stepping in there and saying, well, you, you know, you can't say this or that. Well, then you'd have uh, something to take to court. So it's kind of dodgy right now. It sounds it's, like it's, it's, it's pretty know. it's pretty dodgy. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's there's potential for danger, but it's not here in this proposed legislation. Okay. So I guess a lot of your analysis then is is somewhat speculative, right? You know. So well, at this stage, I'm going to look at this bill some more, and uh, yeah, might have some more to report in the weeks ahead. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I just uh, looking through the rest of the notes. The final conclusion of your notes here are pretty good. I'll just read this if you don't mind. I can just read the end. Yeah. yeah, quote, freedom of speech, especially in the political realm, could be under serious threat if the CRTC elected to regulate online undertakings in a manner similar to traditional broadcasters, e.g. with rules analogous to Section 5 of the Television Broadcasting Regulations, which is, at least superficially, contrary to the determinations made by the Supreme Court of Canada in R versus Zundel. Oh, can you? Which struck down provisions of the criminal code that prohibited and punished the spreading of false news. And the Supreme Court of Canada said, that's way too vague. I mean, who gets to decide what is true or false? And right. um, uh, So I guess that would apply to misinformation, which they're trying to, that's the, the, the new term for false news. Well, by the way, I looked up the difference between misinformation and disinformation. And according to the internet, misinformation is inaccurate information, but not necessarily with the intent. So uh -huh. if I told you that Berlin was the capital of France, but if I did that accidentally because I, you know, had a mental Stroke. slip. I had a mini stroke and I said, Berlin's the capital of France. That would be misinformation. Mm. But if I knew that Paris was the capital of France and I deliberately sought out to deceive you and I intentionally said Berlin is the capital of France, that would be disinformation. So the disinformation is deliberate. Yeah, D for, D for deliberate. So if you're deliberately saying something that you know to be false, it's disinformation. But if it's kind of an innocent, you're just passing something along, then it's just misinformation is just inaccurate. But So D for deliberate, M for misguided. For misguided, yeah. yeah. So okay, all right. So where did you find that? By the way, was that well? Uh, what I can tell you what triggered the search. It was okay. It, it just the the accusations. I mean, this is what uh, we get this crazy stuff on. You know, government should protect us from hate. Okay, who gets to determine uh, what is hateful? Is is hate speech speech that Mr. Trudeau hates? Is that what hate speech is? Uh, and I asked that quite literally, not 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 sarcastically. And people say, "Oh, well, it's obvious what's what's hates people." Well, actually, no, it's not obvious at all. It's, it's extremely subjective. But you have uh, people saying, "Well, the government." Th there's some scary opinion poll data that I've that media has reported on, where it, depending on 
which group, which group of people in which province and how the question's phrased, but you get majorities or large minorities of people saying, yeah, the government should ban misinformation. I'm like, what? <laughs> um, what about the government's narrative? What about the government lying to us for the past two years by insisting that COVID is as dangerous as, as the Spanish flu of 1918? Government lying to us by saying that we should all be very afraid of COVID when the truth is that it threatens a very small minority of people, when the truth is that the impact on population life expectancy has been minimal, uh, when the government terrifies people, uh, fear mongers by saying that there's no treatment available for COVID when the science tells us otherwise. When we have government propaganda telling us over and over and over again that lockdowns are saving lives, uh, but when governments get a chance to present evidence to support that point in court, they don't and they can't and they won't. Is that not misinformation? Why anybody would trust government of any entity to protect us from uh, either misinformation or dis disinformation. I mean, that's like, like asking the, the Fox to look after the hen house. Right. Where would propaganda fit in that little misinformation, disinformation spectrum? Is that kind of like, it doesn't even fit on there or is it just, uh, I guess it would depend the on the sincerity of the person that's spreading the propaganda. I mean, if, I suppose if some. How do you judge these things, though? I mean, you know, how do you judge intent? You know, like, I'm sorry, I don't remember why I said that. You know, I mean, well, I, I can tell you the Manitoba government was engaging in disinformation when it was revealed in the uh, court action when the government's own expert admitted on the stand under oath that 56 percent of the positive COVID cases. Uh, right. So when they were doing all the fear mongering saying, Oh, we got all these cases. Therefore we have to violate your charter rights and freedoms to move and travel and enjoy Christmas dinner with your parents because of all these high case numbers. They knew that at least 56% of those cases were people that definitively did not have COVID. So every time mm -hmm. the Manitoba government said we got a thousand new cases, they knew that 560 of those people definitely did not have COVID. So that's so disinformation. That's disinformation. I also think it's, 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 well, when you don't report on how many of these people are actually sick, uh, that, I don't know, that's probably more, you know, misinformation, I guess. <laughs> okay. I think we could go round and round on this one for a while, you know, so. I mean, I, th I think, I think the, uh, under the charter, I think a reasonable restrictions on internet Content uh, could be, for example, uh, child pornography, uh, snuff films, uh, films of, of extreme violence. Uh, th those are things, uh, and I guess... Uh, They're hates... covered by the criminal code, though, aren't they? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, you know, there have been past court rulings. It's been a long time since I read the court rulings on on pornography, but I think courts have, have upheld the power of government to place some limits on pornography. I have to question the relevance of those court rulings when I'm told that pornography is so widely available on the internet. And I don't know how, I don't even know how governments would seek to, you know, regulate or punish that. Uh, especially with websites being hosted in different countries, right? So even if one country said, uh, we're going to make pornography illegal, I, I'm not sure what mechanisms they would use to, to try to enf enforce that. But it's we pretty just, scary when, you know, beyond, 
beyond that, beyond beyond the you know pornography, hate speech uh, examples, it's pretty scary when government tries to regulate the internet because the internet's the only thing that's saving us right now from very corrupt media that are promoting the government's narrative and that are uh, lying to us mostly through omission. You know, right? Yeah. And like like yes, when, have- when you've got, you know, media reporting, you know, oh, we've had eight COVID deaths in Alberta in the past week. And then media does not say, you know, by the way, we've had over 500 deaths uh, in Alberta. Albertans dying of cancer and heart disease and, and stroke and uh, suicide and drug overdoses and uh, car accidents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. When media don't give you context and when they tell you, in very dramatic terms that eight people have died of COVID in the last week. And they don't tell you that there's also uh, another 500 and something people that did not die of COVID in the past week. Uh, that's fear mongering. So the media are not trustworthy. So thank God we have the rebel and true North and counter signal. And uh, we have epoch times. We have the Western standard and we have all kinds of independent bloggers that are writing things. Thank God that we had independent Canadians sending out the truth from Ottawa by video recording what was really happening, the peaceful protests and people dancing in the streets and kids playing on bouncy castles. Uh, If we were still beholden to the mainstream media, we would be sadly disinformed. Right. I just uh, was thinking about the fact that we now have the government regulating online services, including the media. Both are untrustworthy. So <laughs> I can't say, uh, you know, the, the devil's in the details here because the devils are in the uh, groups that uh, seem to be fighting this battle out. I wanted to just touch on a couple of things, uh, just a couple of events out of the Justice Center uh, recently before we uh, close out the show. Uh, it looks like we had another minor victory. Not minor. They're all major, I should say. We haven't taken down the all the COVID vaccine mandates yet. Uh, but it looks like we have the University of Ottawa dropping their vaccination policy. As of May 1st, 2022. And uh, th- this was a situation we, the Justice Center, we were acting for students. We had not sued the the university, uh, although obviously moving in that direction. But we, mm-hmm. we get a lot of these good results. Uh, over the years, we've achieved all kinds of victories just by virtue of the fact that you've got a lawyer is writing a letter to an arrogant institution, uh, informing, educating, trying to educate the institution about charter rights and freedoms. And you've had so many situations over the years where the, uh, the government authority, the university, what have you, they change their policies without us needing to go to court. So just a little pushback and they see the error of their ways. Is that a Sometimes. generous way? Okay. I would say the the minority, uh, getting those out-of-court victories are probably a, a minority of the situations. I'd, I'd say in the majority of the situations, the institution will dig in, the government or other governmental authority will dig in its heels. And so either we have to sue them or – you know, we have to back off, back off if we don't have enough resources, right? Because mm-hmm. even with 15 lawyers and 12 paralegals, we're still uh, a drop in the bucket, right? In, in the big picture, you got a country with 38 million people and you've got so many violations of human rights and charter freedoms all over Canada. So 
we often are just not able to take on cases we would like to take on. Speaking of the docket, uh, we got anything coming up right away here that I, I'm not aware of? I, I know we usually get press releases when something happens. Is there anything you can, any scuttlebutt you can give us on uh, what's going to, what's coming down the uh, pipe? You know, the, the organization's grown to a point now. We got so much happening in so many court <laughs> cases that the best thing to do is just to read the news releases at uh, www.jccf.ca. And so I'm sure by next week there will be other new cases launched and, uh, you know, out-of-court victories and other results. Okay, that's great. I guess we've got a little bit of a short program this week, but that's fine. Thanks a lot, John, for joining us for Episode 17 of Justice with John Carpe. Look forward to talking to you next week. Talk to you next week, Kevin. Take care. Because we were under our usual hour-long podcast length, I thought I would tack on a bonus track and provide a little extra promotion for the George Jonas Award dinners coming up. This is an excerpt from last year's meeting. About nine minutes I've pulled from the middle of a 25-minute speech by Dr. Francis Christian. I'll provide a full link to the Zoom meeting and to the text of the speech in the show notes. This is a fine example of the inspiring quality oration you will receive along with dinner with the purchase of your ticket. Capitalism versus socialism or communism is a false dichotomy. The true choice for Canada and the nations of the world is between freedom and liberty or tyranny and enslavement. Just as socialism favors a just view of society, Capitalism and individualism do favor a free and libertarian view of the world. But in themselves, none of these systems can guarantee our freedoms. Those who put their faith in capitalistic free enterprise must beware, lest their idols of clay turn into the fist of iron. Many years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Jeremiah exclaimed to his erring nation, and with a certain desperation in his eloquent voice. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? He realized, as I suspect most of us do, that unless the heart of man is changed within, no external system of human organization or promised liberty can lead to the new Jerusalem, the city upon a hill. Throughout recorded history, that city on a hill has been dangled as bait before gullible populations, by revolutionary leaders, by cataclysmic upheavals promising change, by charismatic charlatans who bring democratic credentials into the hallways of crime, and by global predators who are able to convince the people that to be preyed upon is in their own best interests. But if we believe that the kingdom of God is within us, we must realize that change must start within and with the human heart. The siren call to tyranny is never far from the human soul. No matter whether you're a capitalist, a communist, a socialist, 
or even a libertarian. For the heart is indeed deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Britain and America achieved freedom from slavery in different ways. One was peaceful, democratic. The other, democratic, but heralded in by civil war. In both nations, through hard-fought and often bitter battles in the courts, in houses of parliaments and houses of Congress, in newspapers and public houses, and even on the battlefields of the Civil War, it was really a battle for the heart and soul of the nation. In each case, there was an appeal to the higher calling, the yearning of every human being for liberty, and to the conscience embedded in every human heart. Wilberforce, the evangelical Christian, could recruit his brilliant orator friend and Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger to his cause by appealing to his highest ideals, his noblest hopes for the British nation. There is no record that William Pitt shared the evangelical faith of Wilberforce, but there is no doubt of the change of heart that drove his dogged campaign to free the slaves of the empire or of the manner in which, after much struggle and many apparent setbacks, the great majority of the British population also heard the anguished cry of the slave for freedom and answered with a heart that had changed from the heart of stone to the heart of flesh. In America, the freedom that the Constitution promised had to be purchased in blood. But the seeds for that battle had been sown and tended and harvested by the abolitionists and by Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. The heart of the nation had been drawn inexorably, kicking and struggling, but irrevocably and resolutely on the path toward that state of the Union in which, in the words of President Lincoln's second inaugural address, Quote, all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and every drop of blood drawn with a lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. End quote. To change the direction and bring about an about turn in the life of this now oppressed and benighted nation, we must appeal not primarily to political systems politicians, or even to the science. Nor must we believe that Canadians will readily revert again to their reputation for decency, accommodation, and tolerance. These are evanescent virtues that evaporate with the onslaught of seductive totalitarian solutions presented to a population cowering in fear. You see, most Germans or Russians or Italians who bought into their respective genocidal tyrannies were ordinary blokes. Instead, as the JCCF does so effectively, we must always use the law, the political systems, and the science not as ends in themselves, but in service of a higher ideal, an appeal to those eternal and encompassing values of liberty, freedom, free speech, free movement, and fundamental human rights and freedoms that will outlast political and scientific systems and will eventually win through to a better tomorrow. We too, as citizens resisting the tyranny, must fight for the heart and soul of this nation, 
or any nation that is languishing under the shadow of the COVID Orwellian boot. We must use the science, but go far beyond the science to reclaim our freedoms. As I write this, medical apartheid of the uninjected is being rolled out in a disciplined and coordinated fashion in every rich country of the world. Some nations are a little behind, some a little ahead in the exercise of this monstrous tyranny. But together with the cruel oppression of our children in the schools and the numerous rules on distancing, assembling, mass and travel, life as we once knew it has ceased to exist. Against the advice of expert vaccine panels, basic science vaccinologists and statisticians, the COVID criminal enterprise is preparing to inject our five to 11 year old children with an injection they certainly don't need, but one which has known severe adverse reactions and, and unknown long-term effects. Already many of our teenage children have received this injection for a disease whose risk is vanishingly small for their age group and statistically almost too small to measure. Numerous serious and life-threatening side effects from the injection have already been experienced. The tragedy is mind-numbing. These are the great and present evils that we must resist with every fiber of our being. With mass civil disobedience and non-cooperation and with every legal measure still available to us. Much more than science and its demise is at stake. The very heart and soul of the nation must be stoked back to life and liberty. And we will never submit to the tyranny. We will resist at every turn and we will prevail. The undying quest for freedom and liberty can, be, can never be suppressed forever. And every tyranny has a defined lifespan. Our battle continues on several fronts, including the ability we have, we have to counter in numerous ways, great and small, the mainstream propaganda media and, and the Pravda press of Canada. Even in the darkest days of the Soviet tyranny in Russia, small and makeshift secret publications sprang up in multiple major cities. Under great peril to themselves and working feverishly to deadlines, in small, poorly lit and heated rooms, and most often with no more than a few manual typewriters for equipment. This alternate press was printing booklets and pamphlets, even small books, excerpts from the Bible, the great works of Russian literature, including Boris Pasternak's immortal and lyrical novel, Dr. Zhivago, and other banned material were typed, printed, then smuggled into the street and alleyways of Russian towns and cities. This alternate underground press, which has since received the now celebrated name Samizdat, which is Russian for clandestine press. I'd like to salute this alternate Samizdat press in Canada and around the world that has been defying the COVID criminal enterprise for several months. Demonized by the propaganda mainstream media, demonetized by our complicit capitalist financial systems, and persecuted at every turn, they have continued to defy the tyranny, and they're getting stronger.